Welcome back to Brojo Online. I'm Dan Munro, in case you didn't know. Today we're going to be talking about 50 different things that may or probably are happening in your life that undermine your ability to grow self-confidence. So I wanted to give you a chance to eliminate things from your life that make it harder to be confident so that the work is easier to do. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So this is all about making it easier for yourself, building your confidence through living by your values and facing your fears and being deep and meaningful and connecting with others and so on is hard enough without having the additional barriers that you don't need sitting in your way. So today I'm going to talk about those barriers, a mixture of things that happen to you or things that you do or things that you don't do so that you can eliminate them as much as possible. This really comes down to, I guess, trusting my judgment and expertise in the field of psychological confidence. What I'm going to share with you has either been scientifically proven to reduce people's self-esteem and self-worth, or I've observed it in hundreds if not thousands of cases of people I've worked with, including my own life. So it's a mixture of scientific findings and what you might call anecdotal observations from an expertise perspective, perhaps. So if you trust me, then you'll believe me. If you don't, then you don't. But you can look up all this stuff yourself, get Google Scholar going, and check what I'm saying for yourself. I'm going to break it into five sections. Health, vocation, social, psychology, and mission. These are the kind of five areas of life that Brojo focuses on developing. They go by different names. You might say health, wealth, relationships, and so on. But I'm going to look at five to ten different items within each of these areas of how you might be undermining your confidence or allowing something to happen that makes building your confidence much harder. Let's start with health. I'm starting with health for a reason. Health's got to be one of the easiest to control out of all the factors in your life. What you put into your mouth, how you move your body, these things are so much under your control. They might be difficult to do and you'll have all sorts of challenges involved in dealing with them, but it's such an easy win, such low-hanging fruit to make yourself physically healthy. You've got to remember your mind and your body are not separate units. One lives within the other. How well your mind functions will be hugely dependent on how well your body functions. So getting your body sorted, it's like the vehicle. You can't get to the location if the vehicle isn't running properly. Number one, drugs and alcohol. Well, just drugs really, isn't it? Mind-altering substances, things that disturb your hormonal balance, neurotransmitters, so on and so forth. The studies are pretty clear. While microdosing may have some minor benefits, overall, consumption of alcohol and other drugs does more harm than good, especially in the longer term. And especially at a philosophical level, for you to develop confidence, you're going to have to learn how to deal with problems in a natural way, as in you have to be who you really are to deal with them. If you're going out and getting drunk to socialize, you're not going to deal with social anxiety properly. 
you know, if you're using weed to deal with stress like I used to, you're not really dealing with stress. You're not making any real growth or development there. Your emotions and your ability to deal with them is hugely critical to building self-confidence. And so you have to face them on life's terms. If you're using a manufactured substance of any kind to aid you in doing that, then you're not really making progress. It's like taking steroids to compete in sports. You're not really winning. But more importantly, nearly all drugs of all kinds have been shown without any shred of doubt to do physical harm. They disrupt your central nervous system. They weaken and uh, destroy your muscle fibers. They make your skin bad. There's all sorts of negative effects affecting your organs. There's so many reasons why quitting alcohol and drugs is good for you physically and mentally. So if you can stop, then do. Number two, not exercising. I'd say a minimum of half an hour a day of at least brisk movement. Even going for a walk is fine. But it's amazing how many people lead a sedentary life where they're basically not moving nearly all the time. And that is just so unhealthy. It is a bare minimum for you to be doing 30 to 60 minutes of some sort of energetic exercise. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be working out, running, or anything like that. But maybe you've got a hobby like dancing or martial arts. Maybe you like to go for long walks in the morning. It doesn't really matter what you do, but the science on this is undoubtedly clear. You live longer and better with regular exercise than you do if you don't. It also has a lot of mental uh, benefits as well. So your mind, your brain as an organ will function better if your body is active compared to when it's inactive. Staying indoors. Number three, staying indoors at a computer at all times. One that I have to struggle with myself. I don't know what it is, vitamin D or something, but getting out in nature, getting out and getting some sunlight if possible, being amongst trees and wind and bird sounds, it's incredibly healthy. Staying inside all day in unnatural positions, using equipment that isn't natural, walking on a completely flat surface and so on, is detrimental to your health. I can't remember the exact study to cite it, but one was actually done around a certain torture chamber used on prisoner of war uh, prisoners, and they were forced to sit in this room for a long time, and many of them died simply from sitting too much. They weren't able to move, and it did something obstructive to their bowels. So getting up and moving around outside on an uneven surface with a range of temperatures to adjust to as opposed to staying inside with one temperature all the time, which makes you fragile. Number four, the obvious one, overeating or eating unnutritious food. Sugar binging, the binging on sugar, eating fast food, uh, not paying attention to your body's specific dietary needs, like if you're lactose intolerant or uh, if you have some sort of reaction to gluten or whatever it is it's your thing not paying attention to it i for example have a genetic condition around heart disease and around liver disease so i have to eat in a certain way to kind of counteract the downsides of that now i could wait till i'm 50 and have my first heart attack and then do something about it 
or I can do something about it now, which is what I'm trying to do. But basically, your whole rhythm of the way your body works from your digestion through to your heartbeat, through to your brain and your lung functioning and oxygen going around your blood all depends largely on what you fuel yourself with. And most people just simply eat way too much. You know, it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that a human being can survive quite healthily on a single meal per day. So you've got to ask yourself why you're eating so much, especially if you're also using it to deal with your emotions. Just like a drug, if you're using food to cope with uncomfortable emotions, then you're not really making any progress in being confident with your emotions. So, quitting drugs and alcohol, exercising, getting outside every day, eating as much nutritious food as possible, even an 80-20 balance, like 80% of what you eat is healthy and the rest is going to be whatever. This will set you up with a solid physical foundation giving you the best possible chance in terms of hormones and chemicals inside your body for confidence. Okay, it's really hard to be mentally confident when you're physically frail. Now, that doesn't mean that having a disability or an illness prevents you from becoming confident. It's more about whatever limitations you have, you do the best you can with those. So if you're in a wheelchair, if you've got chronic fatigue syndrome or whatever it is that you've got, there's still a range of options as to how healthy you can be. So if I'm in a wheelchair, I could be sitting at home moping about it, or I could be rolling my ass around for a couple of hours a day to make sure that at least my upper body is physical. Those are options. You know, uh, my wife used to be a kind of caretaking nurse type person for someone who was quite severely disabled from a car accident. And... The guy just sat around smoking and drinking beers all day, and the only time he ate it was for pizza. Now, the guy barely had use of his hands, his limbs didn't really work, but those weren't his only options. And he was quite depressed, and he had quite severe mental uh, issues and suicidality, and I have no doubt that that would have been reduced if he had eaten healthier and put less kind of um, dangerous substances or unhealthy substances into his body. So you've got to give yourself the best fighting chance physically. And that's why I put it first on this list. Because if you don't have that shit sorted, it's almost pointless to even look at the other stuff. To look at your career or your social life. It's got to start with your body. It doesn't mean you have to be a fucking top athlete. It doesn't mean you have to be a nutritionist. It doesn't take much to learn the basics of moving around enough and eating the right kinds of foods. It really doesn't take much. Get that stuff sorted to a very basic kind of 80% hit rate level. And then you're in the best possible position to make the most gains elsewhere in your life. Okay, next we're going to talk about vocation. You might call this area wealth or career. It's a combination of what you do for a living, how you manage your finances, uh, what you spend a huge amount of your time doing to provide for yourself. First one, mismanaging your finances. You don't need to be rich to be confident, but it's really hard to be confident when you're living in poverty or you, where you've gotten yourself in over your head with debt and so on. Money isn't really real in any sort of measurable sense, but it does represent the resources available to you. Those of you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, managing your money well kind of secures the first two levels of food and water and safety and security. 
So if you get those two levels established, you can build confidence on top of that. Your vocation, at the minimum, needs to provide for you. Okay, And that isn't about making a lot of money. It's about managing what money you do have well. Now, we've got a whole course in Brojo on how to do this. It's very simple, very easy to follow. It just means that you have to face the truth about your finances. I don't care if you're only getting paid $7 an hour working at a cafe for 13 hours a week. You can still make it work. You can still spend less than you earn. There are some really fundamental principles to managing your finances, like getting rid of bad debt, not spending more than you earn, and frivolous purchases, and so on. It's not that difficult. They should teach it in school, because you can learn the whole lot in like an hour. So there's really no excuse for managing your finances poorly, and you're probably doing better than you think you are. So there's a lot of people who think, I couldn't make any progress with my finances, but they just haven't been taught the kind of tricks of the trade. No matter how poor off you think you are, or even how well off you think you are, you could be doing a lot better. So take the course, or read, I will teach you to be rich by Ramit Sethi, or something like that, because it's really easy to get managing your finances sorted, and then you don't have to worry about food on your table or a roof over your head, and you can work on the core inner issues instead. That being said, the second one under vocation. Working for money rather than passion or interest. Now, if your survival needs simply need to be met, if you're struggling, then yes, get any job that pays. But think of it as a temporary stepping stone, a place to provide for your needs, while in your spare time you look for something better. If you're in a job where the only reason you're there is for the money, and the way to figure that out is, if I was to give you a million dollars, would you quit your job? If the answer is yes, then you're really only in your job for the money. Okay. You should constantly be on a search to find a vocation that you're in where the primary reason is not just to provide financially but the primary reason is to do the work itself. You actually find the work itself rewarding. Don't worry about finding your purpose in life or anything sort of as dramatic as that, but do try to find a vocation that suits you properly, that you enjoy doing, that you feel is meaningful and purposeful to you. Because really, it's really hard to enjoy who you are as a person when you spend 40 to 50 hours a week doing something you hate. It's as simple as that. And you can give me all the excuses in the world about how you got a good boss and you need the money and blah, blah, blah. But it's that question again. If I gave you a million dollars, would you quit? If the answer is yes, then you fucking hate your job. It's as simple as that. Because if you like your job, the answer will be no. Nobody who enjoys their job would quit for a sum of money. Okay? So until the answer to the question... If I gave you a million dollars, would you quit? Is no, keep looking for a better job. Number three, now this one's not entirely under your control, of course, but commuting. You know, I used to work out by the airport and it took me 90 minutes on a good day just to get there. So that's three hours of commuting every day. If it rained or there was a car accident, I'm looking at more than like five hours. Five hours a day, 25 hours a week sometimes, just sitting in a car being miserable. Now, you might think you don't have any control over this, but thanks to COVID-19, this issue is now up for debate. 
many of you listening to this have been relocated to working at home and I bet you it went alright. In fact, most of you would have been more productive. And this is an argument that you can take to your superiors to gain at least a few days working from home, if not completely working from home. Every day that you're not wasting time commuting. Because I tell you what, driving a car in traffic is about as unproductive activity as you can find. At least if you're on a bus, you can get your laptop out and write for your blog or whatever you're doing on the side. But when you have to drive, you can't do shit but drive. It's such a waste of time, especially if you don't have to be doing it. Even just moving so that you're living closer to work and within walking distance or something. It's amazing how much it benefits your life to remove commuting. If you can remove it, do it. Demand it. Number four under vocation. Tolerating poor treatment or contract breaches. Like those of you who do unpaid overtime just to be a team player. Or those of you who eat shit from your boss just because you're worried about him firing you. Or those of you who put up with bullying in the workplace from your colleagues. It's impossible for you to be confident if you feel small in your workplace. It's impossible for you to respect yourself if you allow others to disrespect you. I guess tolerating poor treatment and so on for people breaching their agreements with you is far more general than just vocation. I just happen to put it in this category. But standing up for yourself, saying no, knowing your legal rights and making sure that they are adhered to and respected is critical. You will never have other people respect you until you respect yourself. And the only way to respect yourself is to stand up for what's right. So, if you match it all together, if you're out there always looking for better jobs and applying and stuff, you'll feel less scared of standing up for yourself and work in the workplace because you'll have a range of options available to you. But you can't hope to be a confident person if you spend 30 to 40 hours a week eating shit. And lastly, under vocation, though this is more about finances, consumerism. Most people try to buy confidence. They buy it with products, with experiences, with entertainment. Truly confident people are minimalists. They need nothing from the external world to feel good about themselves beyond what's required to survive. And that is very little. You do not need very much. You think you need a lot, but you don't. You don't even need more than one set of knives and forks for the family. You know, you don't need all the equipment you have. You don't need your car to be super fancy. As long as it drives, it's good enough. And if you can catch public transport, you don't even need a car. There's so many things you don't need. And every single one of them that you have takes up mental space. Like your mind is a cupboard. The memory and the tracking of all your possessions and the maintenance of those takes up mental bandwidth. The less things you have, basically the less things you have to lose and the less things you have to worry about and the less things you'll care about in general. I guarantee you most of you right now probably use 80% of your stuff only 20% of the time. That old Pareto principle. Most of you live in a house where you're not using all the floor space. The house is too big. Most of you have clothes that you barely ever wear. Most of you have a car that far overperforms what you need it for, and so on. 
And if you can get rid of that stuff, not only can you make a little money selling all that shit, but you start to train your brain to rely on you rather than on stuff. And that's really important because you can't do both. If you rely on stuff to make you feel good, just like relying on drugs and alcohol, you can't actually train yourself to create that feeling on your own. So you can either have heaps of stuff or you can be confident, but you can't be both. You'll never find a confident hoarder. Right, next, social, relationships, so on. Got quite a few for this one because, like I said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your health and safety are the first two layers, and that's kind of covered with your health and your vocation. So now, once we get into social, we're really doing the confidence work because the foundation's already set up. Social life... There's so many things that get in the way of you becoming socially confident. Let's start with an obvious one. Porn, masturbation, sex workers. The same principles as drug taking apply here. You're using an external resource to give you some sort of dopamine high instead of dealing with your shit properly. It also really demotivates you. Every time you jerk it to porn, you can't be bothered initiating sex with your partner. Every time you use a sex worker or go to a strip club, you lose motivation to form real connections with actual people and build relationships. These things are kind of stopgap drugs that give you a high, but they actually, in doing so, prevent you from growing. And there's a theme already coming through. All those things you use as quick fixes for your emotional pain, you have to ditch them before you can hope to grow the strength to deal with that pain naturally. You can't work on one while the other's still happening. You can't work on your sex life and your relationships while you're using porn and masturbating to it and using sex workers. It's one or the other, because each one kind of goes in the opposite directions. Number two, phones. Fucking cell phones. What a curse, you know? God, they were, they were great when we were younger. I was like, oh my God, I can finally find my friends when they're not home. And then the apps started coming out and the access to the internet and then pictures and videos. And before you know it, phones became our slave drivers. But when I, what I'm talking about here specifically is using your phone during social events. And this is one of the areas I need to work on a lot. Um, being in Czech Republic, if I'm around people who don't speak English very much, I feel very tempted to just go onto my phone because otherwise I feel quite a lot of boredom. But of course, by going into my phone, I'm not dealing with my boredom properly. If you can, leave your phone at home. If you need it for emergencies, keep it in your handbag or your pocket and do not bring it out. Put it on do not disturb and only answer it, you know, only use it when you absolutely need to. Even if you're feeling socially awkward and uncomfortable, try just being in that awkward discomfort for as long as possible. It's what I'm working on at the moment. You know, if I'm hanging out with my in-laws and you know i don't understand any of the conversation and it's been going for a while i just see how long i can hack it before i resort to my phone and i'm trying to stretch out those minutes as long as possible i want to be able to eventually get to the point where i could sit silently for one hour not know what was going on and still not need to resort to my phone because that's what a confident person would do number three this is probably one of the bigger ones 
tolerating bad fits rather than adjusting to being alone. People often take what they can get socially. They take the group of friends that was plonked next to them in high school or at the workplace. They hang out with people who they don't even really like that much or who annoy them or aggravate them or hurt them in some way because that's all they've got. Not realising, of course, that all the time you spend with those people is time taken away from finding other people. Before you can find good people to be with, you might have to first go through a period of time of being quite alone. Now, alone and lonely are not the same thing. Being around people who you don't connect with can be quite lonely even though they're right next to you. And being alone can be quite rewarding even though there's no one else there. But you need to be okay with being alone. You should set a very minimum bar. You should enjoy someone's company and believe that they're a good, encouraging fit for you at a minimum. If someone isn't that, you don't hang out with them. You'll spend weeks alone rather than hanging out with people who are a bad fit. If you can hold that standard, you're already practicing confidence and you're opening up the space for good fit people to come into your life. Number four, taking this one even further, is having negative people in your life. Now, I don't mean positive people as in they act positive all the time. When I say negative people, I'm talking about the people who discourage you, who are overly pessimistic, who don't support you in any way, who drag you down. Quite often, people who are working on their confidence are surrounded by others who have severe confidence problems. You might find yourself being the fixer or the savior, and you're surrounded by quite damaged people or people who are quite psychologically unhealthy. Now, these people might actually be kind of good people at their core, but being around them hurts you. I know you want to help them. I know you want to make life better for them. But they're like a drowning person. If you get close to them, they will cling to you and you'll drown with them. You can't hope to even help people like that until you've got your own shit sorted. If you want to become a therapist or a counselor later, then do it later when you're confident. But for now, you're just going to have to leave the struggling people to deal with life on their own because you can't help them and they hurt you. So if you're around people who have severe confidence issues and they're dragging you down, it's time to cut them loose. It is not your role to save them. And you can't. They can only save themselves. If they need professional support, then refer them to professional support. You are not their psychologist. You're not their relationship coach. Don't play that role. You're not a social worker. Refer them on to the professionals who get paid to deal with those issues, and you go on and live your own life, and maybe the two of you can come back together later once you've both got your shit sorted. But hanging out with people out of obligation and guilt, just because you always have, even though they're really negative and drag you down, that's not what a confident person does. That's not kindness, because you're being unkind to yourself. For you to be kind, everybody has to win. And you enabling an unhealthy person while damaging yourself is pretty much the opposite of kindness. You're not even helping the other person. In fact, you're allowing them to continue this poor pattern of behavior. Let's talk about having bad parents. At some point, I'm going to have to do an entire podcast just on this issue because it keeps coming up. But let's talk about family. It's the number one issue I deal with as a coach that I find the most kind of resistance comes up. When I'm working with someone on making their social circle healthier, 
the people they most likely to resist me about kind of making a distance with is their own family members. And yet, in any one person's life, that's probably where the most harm is occurring. Now, I'm not saying you can't have any relationship with your family. In fact, you can do whatever you want. It's your life. But what I will say is hanging around abusive people who know how to push your buttons and trigger like the worst to come out of you and are responsible for all your trauma, spending lots of time with them isn't going to do a huge amount for your confidence. I hope that's really obvious. In fact, taking a hiatus, going on a break of 6-12 to months where you give yourself some like real distance from them and keep only superficial contact might be just the thing you need to turn this ship around. Then you can come back as a solid, impenetrable, boundary-setting person and maintain a relationship with them that's healthy for both of you. You know, as my uh, coach Rich Lifman says, the reason our parents can push our buttons is because they're the ones who installed them. Your family are the most likely to get through your armor. And if your family are not loving and supportive and encouraging which is highly likely to be the case if you have confidence issues. Let's face it, it usually starts in childhood. You need some distance. Even if it means you go from seeing them every day to once a week, or it means that you just keep it to phone calls rather than face-to-face contact, or it means that you walk out every time they bring up some bullshit. Whatever you need to do to stop that negative influence on you. Next point, that also applies to friends and flatmates. Are the people you live with dragging you down? Do you have friends who aren't interested in growth or friends who are constantly trying to tempt you into bad behaviors? You know, if you go to quit alcohol, do your friends support you or do they buy you a drink? What kind of friends do you have? Who do you live with? Because if they aren't helping you grow, then they're doing the opposite. you got to understand, you are not bulletproof. You cannot do this journey and hope to be unaffected by those around you. So if you're living or spending a lot of time with people who are trying to drag you in the opposite direction, the most likely outcome is that's exactly what they're going to do. You won't be stronger than all of them combined, especially if you're just starting with this work or you're still in the vulnerable sort of transitional phase where you haven't quite figured yourself out yet. You know, you're like a hermit crab without a shell at that point. People can really injure you. I struggled with this a lot. I was really working hard on myself, but I had a circle of friends who really weren't. They weren't bad people, but like when I wanted to quit alcohol, they would hand me a drink. Or they'd constantly sort of set me up without me knowing to end up in these situations that weren't good for me. Or they'd simply make a lot of noise when I was trying to work on my business and needed peace and quiet. They just didn't help, and because they didn't help, they hurt. And what I had to do for my sanity and growth was move out and make a new circle of friends, and it was totally worth it. Next point. While I advocate that it's better to be alone than it is to be with people who are bad for you, I don't mean that you should socially isolate yourself. Being alone continuously without making any effort to connect with other people is as bad for you, almost, as hanging out with bad fit people. So when I say that you should drop all your bad friends and abusive friends and so on, I don't mean you should drop all people. I mean you should be getting out there and meeting new ones. Going on a hiking club or going to a book club or joining a dance class or a cooking class or doing whatever you have to do to find healthier people who are focused on growth. But isolating yourself away from the world is usually the first thing you feel like doing when you're depressed or anxious, and yet it's the least helpful thing to do. 
You need the influence of positive, healthy people to keep you on track when things get wobbly. So you should be in contact with a healthy person or attempting to be in contact with a new healthy person every single day, at least one, at a minimum. I'm not talking about the conversations you have to have at work. I'm talking about social conversations, non-transactional. You do it just to connect, not to get something or not to talk about facts and figures and logistics. Last one, I want to talk about polyamory. This will be a controversial topic, I guess, and again, it probably deserves its whole podcast on its own. But I've always made a pledge to be as honest as possible, so I will be. I know a lot of polyamorous people. I know a lot of people who don't sort of adhere to the monogamy regime. They believe that having multiple sex partners at the same time or multiple romantic relationships at the same time is better than settling for one person. And I'm not even really arguing against that necessarily, but I will say what I believe to be the truth, which is every single person I know who's practicing this has severe confidence issues. That's it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who's into monogamy doesn't. Okay, there's plenty, there's plenty that do. But more so, it's just I've never found a healthy polyamorous person. Psychologically healthy one. Now, maybe I just haven't met one yet. And it's just bad luck that out of the dozens or perhaps hundreds that I've interacted with, I haven't yet found one. Maybe I'm judgmental and they were actually confident and somehow my radar wasn't working that day or whatever. But what I think the issue is, is why people are polyamorous. I don't think many people are doing it for the reasons they say they're doing it. I think they're doing it out of an avoidant attachment style, or possibly even an anxious one. They either do it to avoid intimacy, or they do it because they're scared of scarcity. And those aren't great reasons to do something. I'm not even really commenting, I guess, on polyamory. If you're doing it and it's healthy for you and you're a confident person, then you have my full blessing. Go for it. It didn't work for me, but maybe it will work for you. I hope it does. But if you're doing it out of an avoidant sexual behavior, you're doing it to avoid letting anyone get in too deep to hurt you, or you're doing it because you feel there's great need to have as many options as possible, like you're missing out on something, the old FOMO, fear of missing out. If that's the reason you're doing it, that ain't a good reason to be doing it. It's like the previous podcast I did a couple of weeks back on doing things for the wrong reasons. Whatever your sexual behavior, ask yourself why. If you're promiscuous and you're sleeping with a lot of people or dating really sort of superficially, that might be okay, but you've got to ask yourself why. And if you're monogamous, ask yourself why. There are a lot of people who are in long-term committed relationships who probably shouldn't be. At least not with that person. Always ask yourself why when it comes to sexual behavior because I find that most people have severe sexual shame issues that they haven't dealt with and so their sexual behavior is a manifestation of those shames. And if you're behaving in a sexual way that's based on fear and insecurity, you're not helping yourself in terms of confidence. You might need to go on a hiatus. You might need to break up with someone. You might need to limit the number of people you date. You might need to expand the number of people you date. I don't know, but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Next topic, psychology, the mind. This is where you've now established, I guess we've done these in layers, kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
if you've basically got your health sorted, you've basically got your career sorted, or at least a job, you know, you've basically got your social life as healthy as possible, now it's time to start talking about getting your mind in check, okay? Let's start with the obvious one, one of my biggest weaknesses, fucking social media. If there's anything designed to wreck your mind more efficiently, I've never heard of it. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or even YouTube, these companies have been specifically programmed by artificial intelligence to steal and capture your attention as efficiently as possible. And that can't be good for you. Not only that, there's so many sort of subtopics or branches away from social media that are more damaging. I'll talk about a few of them later. Like getting in, uh, getting into that kind of outrage porn addiction, where you just get teased and conjoled into emotional reactions based on topics you don't actually give a fuck about, and you wouldn't have even thought of if something somebody hadn't brought it up. Social media isn't designed to help you. And you got to remember, with social media, you are the product. That's why it's free. That should be obvious to you. Anything you use for free, there's no business making a lot of money where it's free okay so if the business is functioning well and making a lot of money but it's free to you then you are the product and with something like facebook that's exactly right you are the product for advertisement that's what facebook is entirely about it's a multi-billion dollar business because you are being sold advertising or should i say you're being sold to advertisers shit i've advertised on facebook you were my product at one point probably so, social media can be used for good things, but you've got to understand, treat it very carefully because the algorithm is becoming ever more sophisticated at controlling your mind. It's as simple as that. It works really well. If you've ever scrolled for half an hour and not been sure why, that's what I'm talking about. I think it's pretty obvious to say that's not good for your self-confidence. And I'll put it this other way. I follow a lot of very uh, confident people, and they do not spend much time on social media. Simple fact. Number two, television and other media. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with watching one movie on Netflix every couple of nights, or, you know, catching your favorite MasterChef program, or whatever else I do, so I don't sound like a hypocrite. But ultimately, media, again, it isn't really designed to serve you, okay? All media is designed really to do one thing, capture your attention so that marketers can advertise to you. It's not designed to help you. And more importantly, a lot of the stuff out there is just junk for your mind. There's a big difference between watching an interesting documentary or a particularly beautiful movie versus watching like, geez, what are those awful programs like the hills am i old saying that um jersey shore housewives or whatever the fuck you know these programs are junk food for your mind there's nothing good in them they're just stimulation and titillation just dopamine highs just crap and they're and they're full of lies especially those sort of reality tv shows i can't believe that's what they're called that's such a incongruent name for them they're anything but real I even saw uh, saw an interview with the guy who used to work on the Survivor cast, and he said that they were just feeding the contestants food and all that, and the whole thing was bollocks. 
you've got to be really careful. Think of TV and other media as nutrition. Think of it like eating. Are you eating ice cream or are you eating a salad? What kind of program are you watching? It's okay to have the occasional ice cream, but if you binge on ice cream for four hours a day, your mind will get fat. It's as simple as that. Number three, junk science and conspiracy theories. This is one of the branches that social media can take you down. But unfortunately, we live in the age where anyone can be an expert. And they don't need qualifications. They don't need to go to school. They don't need to prove themselves in any way. They just need to be loud with an opinion and bold enough to make claims that people are scared to challenge. And one of the downsides to being the healthiest that humans have ever been is we're starting to question the very things that made us healthy, the science. I sincerely believe that there is a huge correlation between accurate, truthful honesty and confidence. That dishonesty, deception, untruthfulness doesn't go well with confidence. In fact, undermines it. Junk, conspiracy theories, all the stuff out there that's based on lies and opinions and feelings and not based on facts and reason and rationality is bad for your brain. If you're going to binge on stuff, binge on stuff by scientists. Binge on stuff by rational people, reasonable debaters. You know, if you're going to binge on YouTube, look up debates between the most intelligent people you can find. That's that's good watching, okay? Watching a conspiracy theory by some douchebag who lives in his mum's basement who's been watching other people's conspiracy theory videos and designing his own based on that material, that's not good for your brain, okay? That can really make things difficult for you to tell the difference between the truth and lies. Stick with the facts. Sure, scientists get things wrong, but not as much as other people do, okay? Not as much as other people do by a long shot. On that note, YouTube education. Look, I'm a big fan of YouTube, and YouTube has been such a helpful platform for me. But you've got to understand, there is no filter. Anybody can say anything and sound like an expert and not be. They don't have to back up their claims. There's nobody sort of quality checking the work. I can say anything I want in a video. I can be totally wrong and sound like I'm right, and YouTube will give you no indication of how accurate I am. YouTube is nothing more than an entertainment platform, so whenever you're on there, don't forget that that's what it is. If you want an education, go to education providers, okay? If you want entertainment, go to YouTube, but don't mix up the two. Real education isn't that entertaining. It's kind of boring. So if you're entertained and titillated and you find your emotions are really kind of thriving and and perked, then you're probably not being educated. Another point on psychology, morning routine. Most people don't have one, or they they certainly have like a routine each morning, but when I say morning routine, I mean something that prepares you well for the day. Most people, the way they enact out their mornings uh, makes their day worse rather than better. Rushing, stressed, procrastinating, they don't wake up their mind, they don't wake up their body, they don't wake up their social muscles properly before they get started with the day. They feel like they're behind for the rest of the day. A morning routine, a good one, with a bit of, say, meditation or a morning walk and cold shower or a bit of exercise, it doesn't really matter. I've got a whole course on it in Brojo that you can do. 
it doesn't almost matter what you do as long as it kind of wakes up the key elements of your brain. It's such an easy win for confidence. In fact, it would be in my top five activities that I'd recommend to a person who wants to become more confident. You get a good morning routine going and you're giving yourself such an advantage for every day. And that has a cumulative effect. So if you start every day on the best possible form, after a few months of doing that, you're going to perform at your best for a few months. And that's going to have a huge impact. But if you're like most people where you're still eating breakfast while you're driving to work, you've fucked up your day. You don't have a chance. You're you're in survival mode now. You'll be lucky to get through this day without being depressed. You can get up half an hour early and start your day so much better than that. I don't care if you've got 10 kids. Get up earlier than them. Whatever it is, make sure the start of your day is all for you. Or otherwise, you've really got no shot. Another one under psychology is an absence of philosophical study. There are a vast array of philosophies out there to be studied, and yet most people don't even look at any of them. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. More importantly, it's about looking at life from different perspectives. The more of them that you're aware of, the more choice you have, and therefore the more likely you are to choose a healthy one. See, if you don't go out and explore philosophies, and debate them, and study them, then you're going to have to come up with your own based on your only, based on only your experience. And that's bound to be a kind of shitty one, okay? We need to work together to come up with a good perspective on life. Nobody does it on their own. I can't even count the number of philosophies I've studied, and yet I'm still hungry for more. I recommend if you've done none, start with Stoicism. Books by Ryan Holiday are a good sort of modern entry point to Stoicism. From there you can go into Taoism, Existentialism. There's, there's so many that you can study. It doesn't even really matter which. As long as you're like, how does this other guy look at the world? You know, he's been looking at the world long enough to write a book about it. What does he say? But don't stop there. What does the next guy say? Or the next girl? Or the one after that? I think you should be doing a minimum couple of hours some sort of study of philosophy every single week. Tell you what, today you listen to my podcast, I consider myself a bit of an amateur philosopher. That's your, you know, that's yours done for the week. But don't just listen to me, okay? I'm one guy with one perspective. My thing's about obsession with honesty and integrity. But there are others out there. And a lot of them have informed what my one is. So you can go back to the source material instead of just listening to my stolen ideas. Next point around psychology. Being stuck in echo chambers. That's a good way to destroy your confidence. If you're in a group where you sort of subscribe to any one particular movement or philosophy and you don't budge from it, you don't, you have no diversity in your life, you don't listen to opposing ideas, it's just you and your group patting each other on the back for being right all the time, you better believe that's not taking you to a healthy place. There is no one who has all the answers. Not even me, okay? Go out and listen to other people. One of the best things you can do is listen carefully to the opposing arguments of the thing you stand for. Don't look for other people who agree with you. Look for the people who disagree with you. At the very least, it might help you validate your ideas and go, yeah, I am on point because this guy's full of shit. But listen. Don't just think that's my enemy. You know, I've completely turned around on some topics. I used to be really pro pickup artist, and now I'm really anti it. 
but I had to listen to the people who weren't in it to to change my perspective, and I'm glad I did. There are too many people I deal with who won't listen to anyone else, and because of that, they don't find themselves their own unique combination. See, you're not going to be just one set of rules. You're going to make your own, and it won't be exactly the same as anyone else. So you're not going to get there by following a single philosophy or movement. And lastly with psychology, and I guess I'm biased with this one, but I absolutely believe it to be true, an absence of coach or mentors. If you do not have at least a mentor in your life, someone you check in with at least every couple of weeks to give you helpful expert feedback on what you're doing and your goals and so on, then what the fuck are you doing with your life? You, you can't do this on your own. Your brain only knows what your brain knows. And you can read books and stuff, but you're only going to read the books that your brain chooses to read. So you're going to be stuck in your own kind of echo chamber of one. You hire a coach or a mentor or join a kind of discussion group. It doesn't really matter how you do it. But at least get other people who you trust and respect to challenge you, to question you, to support you, but also to fight against you when you're breaching your own values. Some of you might be lucky enough to have this in certain friends or uh, even in your partner. But for the most part, if you want an unbiased person, hire a coach. All right, that's why I'm so into it. It's because of how helpful it was for me to hire a coach. How good it was to have someone who's on my team but doesn't buy my bullshit. Someone who wants the best for me but doesn't always agree with me. It was so helpful, it's worth every penny I've ever spent. And it doesn't always have to be paid for. Like I said, you can join support groups, all sorts of stuff. Brojo's there for you. Find people that will help you stay on track. Because no human can do it on their own. Last area, mission. Really, you shouldn't even be worrying about your mission until you've got all the core fundamentals sorted. Alright, you know what, uh... You know how to educate yourself in terms of psychology, you're working on your mind, you got your social life sorted, and it doesn't mean you've got a good social life, but you're working on it. You've got money coming in and you're treating it right and you're doing what you enjoy for work and you're taking care of your body. So you've got all of those things sorted, then you start thinking about a mission. But as you think about your mission, there's going to be barriers to that as well, as there is with anything else. One of the first ones I thought up was SOS, shiny object syndrome comes from probably an avoidant attachment style, but a lot of us, we kind of jump from one new shiny thing to another, and we really never go all in or commit and finish projects. So somebody might start writing a book, and then they're like, oh, but maybe I should do a blog. Oh, maybe I should do a podcast. Oh, maybe I should do videos. And they never really kind of go all in on something. Or someone's like a vegan, and then they work for Greenpeace, and then they start their own kind of hemp store, and they, they just don't go all in. Because anything that's shiny and new and exciting seems so much more enjoyable and pleasurable than something mundane that you've got to keep doing. But if you really want a mission, you're going to have to stick with something. You're going to have to go all in on something eventually. So if you commit to something, follow it through, at least to the end of that sort of project. Because if you keep jumping from one thing to another, it's going to, you're going to find it really hard to figure out who you are and what you really stand for. Because in a way, it's kind of like drug use. You're just trying to get high instead of actually doing something meaningful. Second barrier I see under mission is fighting from the wrong trench. 
thanks to the sort of age of outrage porn that we're living in, there's constant applications being thrown at you from various causes. Basically, you're constantly being asked to weigh in on various social issues. But you can't fight every war. And you've got to ask yourself, what war am I trying to fight here? What what trench am I willing to die in? Because a lot of people are fighting for things they don't actually really care that much about. Or at least they didn't until they were provoked. And at the same time, the things that we really should be fighting for are being left. You know, it's amazing how many people are arguing over whether or not you should wear a you know, whether or not you should be forced to wear a mask, while almost nobody is arguing over how we're going to deal with the sex trafficking industry, right? A real problem where hundreds of thousands of children are kidnapped and used as sex slaves, almost no one's dealing with that, but everyone's got an opinion on masks. Is that really the trench you want to die in? Do you really give a fuck that much? Or are you just using your outrage to avoid going real on something? So when you're being provoked into battling, ask yourself, is this my war? Because if it's not, just leave it. Okay? Just leave it. Next one is trying to find a purpose rather than just living by your values. Funnily enough, finding a mission isn't actually about finding a mission. That kind of doesn't make sense, but a lot of people are looking for a purpose. Like they're just going to open a drawer and lift up a pad of paper and underneath that will be their purpose. Like, oh, that's where it fucking is. I knew I left it here somewhere. That's not how it works. You've got to live purposefully, which is different to having a purpose. Living purposefully is really about integrity, knowing your core values and living consistently by them as much as you humanly can. This will lead you to find a mission. You know, the reason I'm a coach and an author It's because it really, really well aligns with my principles, with my values, with responsibility, with curiosity, with courage, with honesty, with acceptance, with respect. My core values are things I value most dearly. I really get to live by them strongly by being a coach. So I found my values, then I found coaching, not the other way around. So rather than trying to find the thing, Find your values and live by them, and the decisions you make in that space will naturally lead you to find a mission to live by, which you might not even live by forever. I might not always be a coach. At one point, living by my values meant being a probation officer. I guess it's similar to coaching, but it's not the same. And maybe in the future, I'll be a speaker or an author, or maybe I'll be a chef. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm not trying to find one thing to live by forever. I'm trying to live by my integrity every day. And along these lines, my next point is a lot of people are doing what they think they should do rather than what they want to do. Isn't it amazing how much we disrespect the want in us? We want to do something and then we resist against that want as if it's bad or wrong somehow. And yet when somebody tells us we should be doing something that we don't want to do, we're actually quite likely to do that. There are a lot of people who have a job that they don't like, but people say they should do it. Most people went to university just because someone said you should. Isn't it funny how we do university at the start of our life where we have no fucking idea what we're interested in? We commit to like a three to five year degree or a seven year doctorate. We don't even know what we like yet. Fucking university should be done at the end of our lives or at least in the middle. Not right at the fucking start when I don't even know what I want or who I am. It's ridiculous. So a lot of people, in fact, almost everyone you meet is going to tell you what you should do. 
And you should kindly but firmly tell each and every one of them to fuck right off. Because they don't know what they, they what you should do. They don't even know what they should be doing. Nobody has a fucking clue. They're all walking around blind. I promise you that. I'm in business because of that. Alright? You need to follow what you want. What are you interested in? What moves you? What what when you're a kid and you look down to the world and, they, and you thought, man, that shouldn't happen. I, somebody should do something about that. What was that? What have you done about that lately? You know, people laugh when a kid goes, I want to be an astronaut. Why are we laughing? That's awesome. Is he good at maths? Because if he is, then he's well set up to be a fucking astronaut. Someone's got to be a fucking astronaut. Right? And yet, by the time he's 20, he's like, yeah, I'm not sure whether to do accountancy or business management. Um, Which one of those is going to take you into space? Neither. So fuck both of them, you know. But you're going to have other people trying to control your life the whole time. And what you've got to understand, they don't have a fucking clue what's right for you. Even I don't have a clue what's right for you. Okay? So maybe don't even listen to me, which I guess is contradicting this whole fucking podcast. But really, I promise you, no one knows what's right for you. Right, it doesn't matter how certain they sound or how much pressure they put on you, they are fucking clueless. All I can be is honest, and I do honestly believe that I have an expertise in self-confidence. When I look out at people, I'm not judging them, I'm assessing them based on clear criteria. And what I see is that 19 people out of 20 are severely lacking in self-confidence. These are not people you should be taking advice from because they haven't even got their own shit sorted yet. So I'm talking about most people in the world. That's why you hire yourself a coach or a mentor or you get a friend who's obviously got his shit sorted and you listen to them and no one else. Don't ask others what's right for you because they don't know. But a good mentor or a good coach will ask you the questions to help you figure it out for yourself. Next point is around education. I already sort of brought this up before about university. The the more I work in this field, the more convinced I am that the whole schooling system internationally is garbage. And I don't mean that the teachers aren't trying their best, because they are within the limits, most of them, probably. And I don't mean that it's bad to have schools, necessarily, but even university... I I did a three-years psych degree. I have a three-year psychology degree, and I was good at it, and I did a double major, an uh, extended major, sorry, which means I, all I did was psychology, didn't even have like a minor, it's just psychology, every single class. And then I got into a probation officer role, where I had to actually use it, and I just drew a blank, because all that theory and all those classroom discussions didn't prepare me for the real thing. When I had an actual guy in front of me who was really angry with borderline personality, All that classroom stuff went out the window. I had to learn it all again from scratch. The way university school is set up, where you just sit in a chair or someone drones at you and you try to retain as much of that information passively as possible, that's not education. That's not learning. Learning is going out and doing it with a mentor next to you correcting your mistakes. And most education systems don't work on that principle. Back when we were all in tribes, you used to go out with Uncle Whoever and he'd show you how to throw a spear and you would actually throw a spear at your prey and hunt as you learned. These days, you'll sit for like 
five years in a classroom learning how to run a business without even running a business. That's not an education. That's like a simulation at best. Your education's going to come in the real world. You don't need qualifications. These days, they're fucking worthless anyway. Really. Everyone's got one, so they're just worthless. And you don't need one to become an entrepreneur. You don't need one to become an expert. I'm not saying that all education is bad. And for some of you, going to university is absolutely the right move, as long as it's balanced with practical application. As long as it's a topic that you actually came to on your own, you thought, that's what I really want to learn about, not that's what my parents will pay for. Okay. Last one for mission is busyness. People keep themselves really busy and it feels like they're doing something meaningful. They're putting out fires all the time. They've got this massive task list. They're rushing around like a blow-ass fly. And yet they're not actually doing anything meaningful. Confident people aren't busy. Really, they're not. If someone's busy, that is a confidence problem. That is a symptom. It's as obvious as a broken leg. There's no one with a broken leg who's physically fit. So there's no one who's busy who's confident. Busyness is a decision-making problem. Essentialism is confidence. The person who chooses one thing, does it well, and then spends the rest of the time relaxing, that's confidence. You'll know you've found something meaningful when you do just that and everything else you can chill. A client I've got at the moment, when I first met him, he was working in corporate car industry and he fucking hated it. And he since, you know, he used to feel really guilty taking time off. He, he, he couldn't relax after work. He had to smoke weed to relax. He's since learned a new profession. He's gone right at the bottom. He's getting paid fuck all to learn how to be a chef. And now he relaxes guilt-free. He doesn't have to keep himself busy all the time because he's found what he's supposed to be doing and he puts his all into it when it's on and then he can turn off afterwards, safe in the knowledge that he's doing the right thing with his life. So you'll know you've found something meaningful when you don't need to do anything else to fill in the gaps. Right? It completes, like it, it satisfies the hunger. All right? But if you have to stay busy all the time to feel productive, then you probably haven't found your thing yet. So overall, there's kind of five key concepts coming up here to kind of sum it up. One, focusing on values that aren't your own. You've got to do what's right for you, not what other people say is right for you. Two, people-pleasing. Trying to be something you're not so that people will be happy rather than doing what's right for you. Three, being busy with meaningless stuff. You know, the equivalent would be eating unnutritious food, but eating all the time. Four, disrespecting your body, not taking care of the machine. And five, allowing negative influences when you can do something about it. These are the things that make it 10 times harder to become confident and some of them make it impossible to become confident so you can look at the journey as partly about eliminating the things that i've talked about on this list at least some of them whichever ones are most relevant to you and starting at the lower level first you eliminate the health problems as much as you can or at least manage them then the vocation problems as much as you can then the social problems and then you can work on the more sophisticated issues of psychology and mission Put those layers in place and move up. And that's how you 
become and manage your confidence. And that's how you become confident and manage it. If you want any further assistance with that, dan at brojo.org. Get in touch. I'll help you out as much as I can. And I'll see you guys all next week. Cheers. Cheers.